Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today we have David Flatt bringing us our last part of our apologetics series. This is going to be on the topic of, Did Jesus Rise? So is there historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? Is it important that he actually physically and truly and factually rose from the dead? David will do a fabulous job with this. This is a super important series and it's a super important topic. As you may or may not know, an increasing number of active Christians, theologians, and even preachers don't necessarily believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So this is something I think we need to be talking about. So let's hand it over to David right now. All right, good morning, everybody. Thank y'all for coming. Um, now everyone's got a lot going on. Hey, I was see a few, uh, a few faces we recognize here. Glad everyone's here this morning. Um, listen, so this is our sixth and final lesson on apologetics. So apologetics is kind of an interesting topic because some people think it's the most important thing you could ever talk about, and some people think we've wasted the last six weeks thinking too hard and talking about things that don't really have to do kind of intrinsically with how you live out the Christian life today. And so every time that I, I guess this is my second or third time of teaching this series, I just kind of want to set the stage for why I think what we're doing matters. And so this is not the kind of series you'd want to do once a quarter or whatever, but I, I do think it's important, especially kind of in a, a secular um, culture where there's a, obviously we work with and are friends with and share uh, addresses or, or street, streets with people who are not Christians. And so I think it's important that we can talk about faith we can talk about our worldview in a way that's coherent, in a way that recognizes truth, both that's revealed in Scripture and also that God, God has revealed in His natural world. So sometimes you say, well, no one believes in Jesus because of science or history or, or evidence. In a way, I think that's kind of true, but it, it kind of misses the point. So we're having a conversation between how do you know Christianity is true versus how do you show Christianity is true. And so I think for most of us, the reason we know Christianity is true is because we have a relationship with God through His Holy Spirit, right? We had a experience, we had a moment of belief, we, had, we made a decision to follow God. So you know Christianity is true. No, come on. Come on. We know Christianity is true, um, not necessarily. I'm sorry. Hey, well, yeah, y'all come on in. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, we're glad the Carters are here this morning. <laughs> Make sure that's on the podcast. So we know Christianity is true because of the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, right? But we show Christianity is true not by that, right? How can I show you or a non-believing friend that, that I have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, right? You can't demonstrate that. So I think part of evangelism, part of the work of the Christian life, is to be able to use the language of the culture to communicate truth, right? I think apologetics can go a long way into opening doors with non-believers about important conversations. It also ought to be admitted that sometimes within the family, right, within in this room right here, you've got different seasons, even in your own life, where you struggle more or less with doubt, right? There may, you may be going through a season of doubt right now. You may be going through a season of deep faith confidence, right? And it, there's no doubt in your life. But, but I think we all kind of struggle and move in and out of those kind of questions, especially in the culture that we live in Monday through Saturday. So I think taking all that into consideration, knowing reasons to believe that Christianity is true can be helpful even in your own faith journey, right? So it can, you can preach to yourself or preach to your brothers and sisters, uh, you know, over a cup of coffee when you have those deep 
and important conversations. So all that being said, this is the last of our six weeks. And so we had, I think, some, some relevant conversations. Kyle started us off back in January about why does it matter that Christianity is even true? Does it matter if God exists or not? And then we talked about how we can know God exists because of uh, the moral argument. If, if morality is objective, which I think it seems to be, then it follows that there has to be an objective moral law giver. Right? Then we talked about, we did uh, three weeks on science. Grant talked about how faith and science can interact in a healthy way, and then gave some examples of how many people on both sides of the argument try to use faith and science in ways that aren't healthy. Then we talked about uh, an argument for God from the beginning of the universe. If the universe began to exist, then it, it follows that there must have been a cause for its beginning. And then uh, last week, Kyle talked about the design of the universe and how uh, the fine-tuning of physical constants and the physic, physical structure of the universe hints towards or suggests that there was some kind of designer behind it. So all that being said, I think this week, in some ways, I, I wouldn't say it's the most important, but it's, it may be the most relevant. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then almost, you, you get almost all of that with it, right? If there really was a first-century uh, itinerant Jewish preacher who was murdered because he, was claim, he claimed to be God, and then he actually physically rose from the dead, then it seemed like you get all the rest with it, right? It, it, it seemed like it would matter that that happened, right? So it matters that God exists. It seems like what he preached and the morality he calls us to also matters. And it would also seem like God must exist, right? People don't come back from the dead naturally, right? So there's some, something supernatural, something uh happen and since this is a guy that was preaching that the full revelation of God was in himself I think it matters what happened so anyway uh, you don't have to take my word for it because it's also what the Bible says uh, so look at 1 Corinthians 5 1 through 3 this is Paul he says now brothers I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand so this is the gospel by this gospel you are saved so if there's a gospel being preached and there's nobody talking about salvation, I think we need to ask, is that the gospel? By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. So you've believed in vain if this isn't true. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. So Paul says that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we believe in vain. And, and later he's going to say, we're to be more pitied than unbelievers. Right? The whole, th the whole Christian gospel, the first preaching of the gospel, centered on this guy that claimed to be God that you murdered, he rose from the dead, confirming that what he was preaching was true. That's what the first Christians preached, right? And so really all the things that are built around Christianity, which are good and we want to affirm and, and uphold, they all come down to this truth. Did this guy rise from the dead or is he still in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb? Body decayed, right? And so really I, I, don't, I, I want to kind of be maybe uh, just kind of out there on this. If it was discovered that Jesus of Nazareth, you know, if they, could, if they dug up his bones and it was certain these are the bones of Jesus of Nazareth, I think Christianity would, wouldn't matter anymore. There wouldn't be, this would be kind of a country club, be kind of like a, a place to interact and build social connections and share life with, but it wouldn't be Christianity, right? Christianity centers on the resurrection of Jesus and confirmation that he was who he said he was. Okay. 
So how does all that fit together? So one of my favorite stories, uh, a, a guy that, I'm a guy that loves history. So in World War II, right after World War II, German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer invited Billy Graham to come to West Germany just so you could kind of talk about life. And so here's Adenauer. He's trying to figure out how to put Germany back together after just what was you know, obviously a 20 years of almost couldn't have been a, a worse political disaster. And uh, you can imagine all the turmoil and strife and just pain that a good man that was trying to put Germany back together in the early 50s would feel. And Adenauer looked at Graham and said, do you really believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Graham said, if I didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, I would have nothing to preach. I think Paul would say that's true. Without the resurrection, there isn't anything to preach. Mr. Adenauer paused a little longer, walked over to the window, and looked out at the debris and destruction of the city below and said, Mr. Graham, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. And I think that's true because the resurrection of Jesus does a few things that we ultimately really need. Maybe the kind of things that we don't always think about, uh, but I think if you are going to be a fully firm, formed person the way that God designed for you to be, you've got to think about and consider. So the first is significance. This is what Kyle talked about six weeks ago. Does your life matter? Does it matter that you exist? A billion years from now, will it matter that you ever existed? And if the resurrection is true, the answer is yes, because you were designed in the image of God, of a God who sent his son to die for you and then rose again, conquering death. Okay? The second thing is it answers this question of suffering. So I think one of the ultimate questions of, of life, of being a human, is to answer and, and to contextualize what it means to live in a world full of suffering. A lot of suffering that seems unjust without cause and without purpose, right? So how do you contextualize all of that? And I think there's kind of two strategies, really. One is to ignore it or be ignorant of it, right? And so we kind of, we just watch our Netflix shows and we kind of do the Monday through Friday and we come home, we order the, din the dinner and get up again and the next day do the same thing and not really consider the kind of world we live in. The other response is to, to fully embrace it and become depressed, right? And to feel like there is no meaning or purpose behind the suffering of the world. Well, the cross and the resurrection has a different story. So it has a story that not only is suffering real, right? So we don't have to ignore it, but the Son of God suffered for us. And not only did He suffer for us, but He conquered that suffering and even death in the resurrection. So if the grave is empty, then your future isn't death and suffering only, right? It's possible that your future is meaning and relationship with a God who created you. The third thing that the resurrection offers is salvation. So you don't think this way and I don't think this way because we live in 2018 America and as much as we come in here an hour a week or maybe have a Bible study or have breakfast with friends once a week and try to be spiritually focused, it's almost impossible to not be influenced by uh, a postmodern culture that's dominant in the, in the internet world, in the social media world, uh, on television. So we think the ultimate problems in the world are things um, that are problems, but are, are mostly physical in nature, maybe political in nature. But your greatest problem and my greatest problem is my sin. Is my sin. The sin that separates me from a God who loves me and wants to have a relationship with me. Right? And so the, the great problem of my life is I, as a sinner, cannot be in relationship with a holy God. Right? And that's what the Bible's about. Right? So... We're separated from God by our nature in the beginning, and then God interacts this story that covers about 4,000 years to rectify that, and then we're trying to live that story out. 
But the, in a lot of ways, the, the resurrection, it's not the end of the story, but it's the apex of the story. It's the climax of the story. You remember like in literature, stories kind of have an arc. And you hit the climax, the point of the story. And then from the arc, out there we live out the rest of the story. But the apex of the story of how God rectifies and reunites us to himself is in the cross and the empty tomb. Right? Because if Jesus died for your sins and then rose from the grave to conquer death, then salvation is possible. Right? So I think all these things, maybe the three most important things you need in life. You need significance. You need a way to contextualize your suffering and suffering in the world. And ultimately, you need an answer to the question of your salvation. I think we get all three if the resurrection is true. Which leads to, I think, a question that we ought to be open and comfortable asking even in church is, is the resurrection true? Because if it is, man, it's awesome. If it's not, should have slept in this morning. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> should have stayed at the house. And so, um, like I said, we're not going to do this every week, but I think it's relevant to talk about it. Not just so you can win an argument with an internet atheist type at, at Starbucks on a Thursday night sometime, but so you can have confidence in your own faith and so that you can live out a faith that matters because it's a faith that you believe. So um, let's, that was kind of all like spiritual church talk, which I, of, of course, believe. That's why I said it. But I just want to take about a 15-minute break from kind of Bible quoting, um, spiritual advice, so to speak, and let's think like we're in a history class. Okay, and the reason I want to do that is because if you're, ta- if you're in a, a season of doubt yourself, or you've got a brother or sister in Christ that's in a season of doubt, or if you're having a conversation with a friend who doesn't believe, we can't quote Scripture to each other, right? We need to have a different perspective to come at that at. And so what I want to do is let's look at what happened in first century Palestine just from a historical perspective. So I wish Scott was in here so I could kind of throw it to the guy that's got a doctorate in history, but the way that history's done is we look at multiple sources to try to understand the facts of the situation. And then the historical question is, what's the best explanation for those facts? What's the best explanation of those facts? So the hypothesis is, uh, the, is, is called the explanatory scope. So what, what event can explain uh, circumstances? So you think um, about any kind of historical event. Did Caesar really cross the Rubicon? Who was Alexander the Great? What, what life did he actually live? What happened uh, in the American Revolution, right? So different seasons in history, we have more or less evidence. But the truth is, what we're always trying to do with history is put together the evidence and perspectives that we have and say, okay, in 2018, we have this document and this story and the world is like this and people have an oral tradition of this. How do you best explain that all these things are here in 2018 looking backwards, right? So the best way that you can explain that just to give an easy one, the best way you can explain that we have a constitution, constitution hall and in the American archives there's this document called the Declaration of Independence and there's this oral tradition about the American Revolution and we have a White House and we have a presidency that we said has been passed down 44 times to 44 different presidents. The best way to explain all that is something like the American Revolution that we study in our history books actually happened. Right? So that's how you do history. You take what do we have and you try to trace it back to find your best explanation. So that's all I want to do right now about what happened on um, the so-called first Easter morning. And what's, what do we know kind of from secular sources uh, that happened? What do we know that the Christians said happened? And then how can we put those together to maybe come up with some kind of conclusion that's, that's reasonable? Okay, so I want to um, maybe suggest three great facts this morning. The first fact, and these would be facts that um, historians, whether they be um, sympathetic to Christianity, 
um, neutral to Christianity or even antagonistic to Christianity would accept, right? So this guy named Gary Habermas, who is a Christian, but he did a historical survey of people with PhDs in history who specialized in this time frame. He said all three of these facts have greater than a 92% acceptance rate by people who are both pro and against uh, the kind of the Christian position. So the first fact is that the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth was found empty on the first Easter morning. So the tomb was empty. That would be fact number one. And we'll walk through these facts and say why, um, why most historians believe them. Fact number two, both followers and enemies of Christ experience what they believe to be appearances of Jesus after his death. These appearances occurred in multiple locations to individuals and to groups of people. Okay, So it's tempting to see that fact and say like, oh, well, well David, if you got that, then you got the, you kind of, kind of jumping the bridge, so to speak. Jesus appeared to him, seemed like it's the case. He says, well, I mean, just hold on. So what we're saying here is followers and enemies of Christ experience what they believe to be appearances. So historians are in agreement. There's a group of people, they think they saw Jesus, okay? And, and we'll talk about why that's true in a second. And then fact three is that some event in first century Palestine produced a radical transformation in the beliefs of large groups of people, causing them to convert to Christianity. So something happened in first century Palestine. There was not a religion called Christianity. And all of a sudden, thousands of people localized to this one area of the world began converting to Christianity all at the same time. So what, do you, what has to happen to explain for that, right? And so historians would do this with all kinds of religious movements. You could do this um, with Islam, or you could do this with Mormonism, or you could do this uh, with Hinduism. What, what, what do you posit to explain the rise of a sudden change in belief in a group of people to convert to a different religion, right? And so there's different explanations um, for the different religions. Maybe that'd be an interesting study to go through sometime. But today we're talking about why did these large groups of people convert to Christianity all at the same time and in the same place? Okay, so let's just take these one by one, and we'll kind of walk through this pretty fast because, like Kyle said, we want to be disciplined finishing on time. But I do think some of the things we're fixing to say are important. So let's try to lock in and see if we can't come up with something that seems <clears throat> to be encouraging to our faith, maybe something we could share uh, with our friends from different faiths. So the tomb of Jesus was found empty on the first Easter morning. So why should we believe that? Not theologically, not biblically, not as Christians, right? Not as people who presuppose the, the ultimate truth of, of the Word of God, but as someone who's, for the next 15 minutes, looking at what happened from a historical perspective. Well, I think I would give three reasons that we ought to think that. The first is what we'll call the Jerusalem factor. <laughs> So the, lo the location of the tomb of Jesus would have been known to Jew and Christians alike, right? The reason is Jesus was buried in the tomb of a prominent religious and political leader, right? So he was buried in this famous guy's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Had the tomb been occupied, enemies of Christianity could have easily produced the corpse of Jesus in the very city where the first Christians were proclaiming that their Messiah had risen. So I want you to imagine this. Peter's up at Pentecost, right? So in, in our tradition, the Church of Christ tradition, Pentecost is like a really an important moment. That's like when the church started. Peter gives this great sermon, Acts 2. You ought to sit down and, and read it. It's really awesome. Kind of ties back all the history of the Jewish people to this one event. And, and Peter says, you know, God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then somebody calls out from the crowd, says, 
if all this is true, if, this, if the guilt of the murder of Jesus is on us, what must we do to be saved? Right? That's the famous question, Acts 2.37. Acts 2.38, Peter says, you know, repent and be baptized, every one of you. That's you know, one of the reasons we think baptism is so important because that's the ans- one of the answers to that question, what do I have to do to be saved? Imagine if they asked that question, what must we do to be saved? And the Jewish leaders dragged a 40-day-old, smelly, gross corpse of Jesus from the tomb right in the middle of the sermon. Like, if that had happened, we wouldn't be here this morning, right? Like, that would have been, that kind of would have been the end of it, right? <laughs> like, we're not, complain- we're not proclaiming that he's risen from the dead if his smelly body, 40 days old, is here. And so everyone knew where the tomb was, but no one produced the body. So I think that's a, a beginnings of thinking. Maybe they didn't produce the body because there wasn't a body in the tomb. The second thing we'd say is the Jewish response. So I want you, I want you to think about... You know, let's think about the Bible not as an inspired text, but just Matthew 28. So what did the Christians say the Jews said about the tomb, right? Anybody remember? So they said that the disciples stole the body, right? That was the Jewish response. And that's also recorded, not just in the Bible, but in Justin Martyr, Toledoth Jesu, Trifo 108, and this other document called Tertullian on Speculius 30. So these are ancient documents from the Jewish tradition that claimed the tomb was empty, but it was empty because the disciples stole the body. The disciples stole the body. That's, that was the crime of the disciples. But I want, you to, I want you to recognize something. The earliest Jewish explanation for what happened on that first Easter Sunday presupposes an empty tomb, right? No Jewish leaders, no Roman leaders were saying, you guys are crazy. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He's in the tomb, right? They said, you guys aren't telling the truth. You stole the body. That's why the tomb's empty, right? So this is the second reason that, that scholars, both Christians and those um, kind of neg- have, who have a negative view of Christianity say, whatever happened, the, the tomb was empty on that first Easter morning. The third thing I would say is the testimony of women. It kind of goes without saying, first century uh, Palestine was not a, a great time for like the empowerment of women, right? In fact, Josephus records that women weren't even allowed to give testimony in a court of law, right? Because their testimony was considered uh, un, untrustworthy and unreliable, right? So as disgusting as that sounds, right? And so I'm, I'm obviously very thankful that we're in a different spot now. I do think it's relevant to consider if that's true, and you were writing into a culture where women weren't recognized as reliable historians, reliable presenters of facts, why would you create a story where women discover the empty tomb? Right? That would make no sense. If you were making up a story, who do you have to discover the tomb? Well, like John or Peter or like people who are good spokesmen and could be reliably considered. These are good Jewish boys. They grew up, you know, they, they studied in, in uh, rabbinical school, and they would, they would tell the truth. They would follow the Ten Commandments, so to speak. So why do all four of the gospel writers uh, conclude, or at least the gospel writers that, that talk about this, this event, uh, have women discovering the empty tomb? Well, obviously the reason is because that's what happened, right? If you were making up a story, you would make up a different story. But if you're telling the truth, you would include details even if they're embarrassing. So here's, um, here's what William Wan, he's a historian at Oxford who studies um, you know, first century Middle Eastern history. He says, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb. Those scholars who reject it ought to recognize they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. That of scientific history. So this is a guy, you know, this guy's not, you know, preaching at Highland next Sunday. You know, this guy's a professional historian. He says, look, 
the tomb was empty. And the way that we do science for any other historical event, uh, the best explanation for these events that we know is that the tomb was empty. Okay, so let's talk about the appearances. I think for us, the appearances seem um, <clears throat> to be like maybe the ones that we would doubt the most, right? It seems kind of supernatural. Like, well, if you, if you grant appearances, then you kind of have, have sold the whole story, so to speak. Um, but kind of ironically, the appearances, or at least the experience of appearances, is the one that has the most scholastic agreement. So there, there maybe isn't a scholar who doesn't think that these first century men and women believe that they saw um, Jesus. So why do they think that? The first is, is that they claimed it. They claimed it. So this isn't that hard to prove, right? These first Christians claimed that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. Um, so, you know, maybe we're, we're trying to be efficient on time here, but if you just want to later, Luke 24, 34, Acts 1, 1 through 11, Acts 2, 32, Acts 3, 15, Acts 5, Acts 10, Acts 13, 1 Corinthians 15, over and over and over again, there's this testimony in Scripture, we saw him, right? He died, we saw him. That was the testimony of the first Christians. So they claimed it. Now, of course, if you claim something, that doesn't necessarily mean that you believe it, right? So you probably have had the experience before of being in a tense situation and being able to say something that would make your life better. You might have claimed something that you didn't think, uh, that you didn't believe. We call that lying. That's, that's one of the Ten Commandments. We try not to break that. Uh, but, of course, it happens. And so maybe um, that's what these first Christians were doing. They claimed that they saw Jesus risen, but they didn't really believe it. I would argue that not only did they claim it, but they absolutely believed it. And you'd say, why is that true? <clears throat> well, the disciples not only made these claims, but they believed them. We know this is true because virtually all of Jesus' disciples were willing to die for the belief that they had seen Jesus risen. This fact is recorded in at least seven ancient non-biblical documents, including Clement, Polycarp, Tertullian, Ignatius, and Bishop Oregon. The truth is that liars make poor martyrs. It's easy to claim a lie or maybe even live out a lie, right? We can live out a lie, but no one is willing to die for a lie. The disciples are unique in the history of all religious martyrs and that they lived in a unique place and time in history to know whether or not what they were telling is the truth. So this is important. This isn't the same thing as a modern-day religious radical who dies for what he or she believes, right? We see that in present day. You see a, somebody who's really committed to a truth that they believe and they're willing to die for it. Well, how is this di any different than that? Because the disciples didn't die for what they believed. The disciples died for what they knew. Either Peter had seen the resurrected Jesus or he hadn't. And he knew what the truth was. And yet he was willing to be crucified upside down and along with the deaths of tortures that the other early Christians experienced for the claims that they had seen Jesus risen, right? So if you want to think of like a modern-day example, I guess this is like before most of our times, you probably studied this in school or whatever. Think about like the Watergate scandal. President Nixon, whole administration is like just straight-up lying about what happened, like just protecting this secret about what happened at the Watergate Hotel, right? They're like they're all in. Then the special counsel comes in and starts throwing people in jail, right? So now everyone's lying, but now there's like consequences for your lies. What happens? Everyone immediately started telling the truth, right? Like everyone immediately. And the scandal was over like in a week. They had the truth and, you know, I mean, you guys know the end of the story. Nixon resigns, the whole bit. Um, 
and, and the, obviously the human example is there, you'll tell a lie if it will benefit you. You're not going to hold on to something that you know is not true and experience suffering, like going to jail. Much less would you be tortured for something that you don't believe to be true. So I think we stand on about as solid historical grounds as you could stand on to say that both the early Christians believed that they had, or both the early Christians claimed that they had seen Jesus risen, and they believed it. So maybe they're crazy, but they believed it, and they were they believed it enough that they were willing to be tortured for it. So here, this guy is not a this guy is not a Christian. His name's Gert Ludemann. He's maybe the most famous um, historian of this time period. He studies at an institute in Germany. This is actually uh, William Lane Craig, who we've talked about some during the series, but uh, Craig studied under him when he got his uh, PhD. But Ludemann said it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death, in which Jesus appeared to them as a risen Christ. So Ludeman says, if we're doing historic history the same way that we're doing history in all these other areas, when we study Caesar or we study Plato or, or Aristotle, and we think, what did people experience? What do they think happened? Those same historical criteria would say, these first disciples think that they saw the risen Christ. Okay, fact three. So this is the origin of Christian belief. What we said is some event in first century Palestine produced a radical transformation in the beliefs of large groups of people, causing them to convert to Christianity. So I just want to talk about two groups of people that converted to Christianity and try to think, what is our best explanation for why this would happen? So the first is first century Jews. So we don't have time to kind of go through the whole theology of what what we call Second Temple Judaism would be. So this is at the time the Second Temple existed, not the First Temple. But for a Second Temple Jewish theologian, Jesus had not just undergone what in their minds was a heretical death, right? He died on the cross. That was how heretics died. But for them, an individual who was killed by crucifixion was considered cursed by God, not God in the flesh. So the idea that God in the flesh would die on a cross is just anathema to, to that worldview. Judaism supplied no theological foundation for a belief in a dying, much less rising Messiah. First century Jews absolutely did not believe in a resurrection of any form prior to the end of the world. I think you see this like in John 11, right? So Lazarus dies, is in the tomb. Jesus comes to see Lazarus. Uh, Martha comes out. She's all distraught. Martha says, you know, why didn't you come sooner? He's already dead. Jesus says, Lazarus will rise. What does Martha say? Well, I know Lazarus will, Lazarus will rise at the end of times, but he's gone now, right? Go, go back and read the story today, and you'll see it. That's like their, their theo- theological worldview. Resurrection didn't happen in the middle of history. Resurrection was an end-of-history event. So if you had that worldview, if you went to rabbinical school and, and came up um, thinking that way, the idea that you would suddenly change your mind to believe that a resurrection happened in history without any reason to do so, I think is unlikely. But despite having every predisposition against the belief and no re- religious foundation in which to ground their belief, the disciples suddenly came to believe that their leader had risen from the dead. Second group we talk about, why would enemies of Christianity suddenly decide to be Christians? So think about this guy named Saul, right? So this is this guy, he's like, you know, fast riser in, in his rabbinical school, studying under Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis at the time, uh, becomes convinced that, that Christianity is a heresy. It's an um, anti-Jewish religion that must be stomped out, goes out killing Christians because in his committed belief, 
passionately believes in the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we must stop these heretics and what they're preaching. Literally, is arresting and killing Christians. Then some reason, Saul decides, I'm going to stop killing Christians, and I'm going to become maybe the most important Christian that ever lived, right? So Saul literally says, I'm going to change my name. I'm going to stop looking for and arresting Christians. I'm going to spend the next 25 years traveling around the world, becoming shipwrecked, whipped, lashed, criticized, attacked, proclaiming that the thing that I hated and was trying to stamp out is actually true. All right? So what accounts for that kind of change in a person? The other person I think is interesting to talk about is James. So go back and look like in the early Gospels. James, of course, is the brother of Jesus. I have a brother. Maybe some of you guys have brothers too. I think he's great. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God? Right? I mean, just, I just want you to consider that. Like, you may or may not love your brother. You may or may not have a good relationship with your brother. But just in a, in a historical context here, we're not being like Bible thumping. We're thinking just kind of really logically and emotionally removed. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was a son of God? And I think almost nothing could. Right? So this is why you have this story in um, of. Jesus' brothers and his family being embarrassed about him in his ministry, right? So that's like in, I think it's like in early Matthew, Matthew 8 or 9, somewhere around there. They're embarrassed about Jesus' preaching. Then suddenly, Jesus dies. Got to be humiliating for the family. Jesus dies in the most um, offensive, um, embarrassing way that a Jew could be killed, crucified on a cross. And then all of a sudden, you have his brother, who was embarrassed about him when he was preaching, becoming an elder in the church in Jerusalem, right? The same place that Jesus was crucified and, and claimed to have risen from the dead. So how do you explain the transformation of, of Paul and James, two enemies of Christianity, if they didn't see the risen Christ? I think it's really, really difficult. And I think you're really, I mean, you're really kind of having to revert to really extreme, unlikely events to make that kind of explanation. <clears throat> so N.T. Wright, who is a Christian, but is, a, I think, a, a smart, honest man, he says that that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind. So his thought is, I can't explain why first century Jewish people and um, enemies of Christianity suddenly decided to follow Jesus the rest of their life at the, at the cost of suffering unless they actually saw the risen Christ. So, of course, there's two sides of this story, right? So everybody didn't just say, okay, well, I'll be a Christian. That's a, that's a good claim. So there have been um, other arguments that have been brought up. Let's talk about the three most common real quickly. So the first would be the conspiracy theory. So why don't we believe the conspiracy theory? The disciples got together. They decided to make this whole thing up. Maybe they stole the body. This is really the first explanation. The, the tomb is empty because you guys stole the body. Well, I think there's some problems with this. The first is that I think the disciples believe the resurrection, right? Did they steal the body and then allow themselves to be, like, tortured? That seems unlikely. The next would be if, if there was a conspiracy, that doesn't explain these appearances. So, like, there's one story, like, there's a group of people that, um, that saw Jesus and he preached to him. How do you explain that if it was all a conspiracy? I think a conspiracy can explain the conversion of Paul and James. Paul wouldn't have been in on the conspiracy, right? Ten years later, he's trying to murder Christians. And then the, just the, the point is the conspiracy theory really only explains the empty tomb. It doesn't explain the um, origin of belief, and it doesn't explain the, the um, 
appearances. The next is the apparent death theory. This was the most popular theory like in 19th century enlightenment um, secular thinking. So these would be guys like David Hume, if you studied that period of time. They thought that Jesus just looked to be dead on the cross, was put in the grave, and then later he revived and came out. Right, And so this is the apparent death. He didn't really die. <clears throat> There's two things I want to say about it. The first is one of my favorite pieces of, I don't know, history or just kind of a funny thing that's happened in history. But So JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, there's like this prestigious medical journal. There's an article in 1986. This surgeon went through what happens in crucifixion to try to answer the question, is it medically reasonable that somebody could be, that we could crucify somebody and that they could survive? Here's, here's his last paragraph. Jesus of Nazareth underwent Jewish and Roman trials. He was flogged. He was sentenced to death by crucifixion. The scourging produced deep, stripe-like lacerations and appreciable blood loss, and it probably set the stage for hypovolemic shock as evidenced by the fact that Jesus was too weakened to carry the crossbar to Golgotha. At the site of the crucifixion, his wrists were nailed to the patellum, patellum, and after the patellum was lifted onto the upright post, his feet were nailed to the stipes. The major pathophysiologic effect of crucifixion was an interference with normal respirations. Accordingly, death resulted primarily from hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. Jesus' death was ensured by the thrust of a soldier's spear into his side. Modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence of crucifixion indicates that Jesus was dead when taken down from the cross. That's W.B. Edwards, March 21, 1986, of the Journal of the American Medical Association. So it's interesting, really though, this theory died about 100 years before that. So there's this famous atheist enlightenment thinker named David Strauss, and he, uh, he made fun of this theory. He called it the swoon theory, and I really think this is kind of the death blow, is to play a hypothetical imagination game. So imagine that the Romans, who were good at killing people, had crucified Jesus, whipped him in the back, spear in the side, flogged him, you know, all the pain and torture of crucifixion. Somehow, let's just pretend that he could have survived it, right? So imagine he survived it, and then he wakes up in the tomb. So this hypothesis would say he woke up in the tomb, somehow got up and got dressed, pushed the stone back, walked to whatever distance to find some of his followers, and when he presented himself to his followers, they were not um, looking on him with surprise and compassion and a desire to heal his wounds and take care of their injured friend, but they were inspired with passion that he had risen in a resurrected body from the dead. And so the, the point is, if, if Jesus had apparently died on the cross, but then kind of revived in the, in the tomb, uh, it would not have inspired disciples to follow and celebrate his resurrected body. It would have inspired compassion to care for him medically. And the third theory would be the hallucination theory. So maybe everybody is just hallucinating. Maybe they thought they saw Jesus uh, because they were having hallucinations of Jesus. Well, this is psychologically improbable. Uh, the disciples and the writings, they show no evidence of drug abuse or psychological disease. They don't appear to be, at least clinically, the kind of people prone to hallucinations. The frequency, number, and nature of the appearances makes the hallucination theory improbable. So we, there's no, really nothing in the psychological literature of like groups of people having the same hallucination. That, that doesn't really happen. So Jesus presented, like one, one example, it, this is from the Bible, but in one example preached to 500 people. The idea that 500 people would all be having the same hallucination at the same time, we just don't know anything like that in the psychological literature. Hallucinations would have led the disciples to believe that Jesus had ascended to glory in, a he in heaven 
a much more Jewish thought rather than Jesus had resurrected. So they might have thought if they just saw him, this kind of like a ghost of Jesus, right? Kind of like a, um, almost like a Greek thought. Like this is not his body, this is his soul coming back for us to see. That's a much more Jewish way to think about um, what would have happened as opposed to a bodily resurrection. And then fourth, it fails to deal with a full scope of evidence. So uh, the hallucination theory, well, how do you have an empty tomb? Well, the tomb wouldn't be empty if everyone was hallucinating. The body would still be in a tomb, right? So you can't, maybe with some of these alternative explanations of the evidence, you can explain maybe one fact or two facts, but you can't put it all together by saying it was a conspiracy or Jesus didn't really die on the cross or maybe everybody was just hallucinating. So what are we left with? I think it's reasonable to say maybe the first disciples' explanation for what happened on the first Easter morning was correct. Maybe the tomb was empty because Jesus rose. Maybe the disciples saw him because the grave couldn't hold his glory. Maybe everything the disciples believed about who they were and what the religion was was changed because they saw their king not scared and weak, crawling injured out of the tomb, but in resurrected victory. So the miracle of Easter, I think, from a historical, kind of logical, modern, scientific thing perspective, is not, it is reasonable. But it's not just reasonable, it's also meaningful. So remember what we talked about earlier. If the resurrection is true, your life matters. All your problems, all the things that cause you anxiety and depression and fear and worry and the things that make you not complete the way that God intends for you to be as His image bearer, All of those things can't take away your significance because you're so significant that the second person of the Trinity was willing to die and rise to conquer death and evil for you. You matter regardless of how how low you feel sometimes. Your suffering also will not be complete. The end of your life, the end of your story is not the poverty you feel or the pain you seek or the death of somebody you love or the unfair injustice that you're having to deal with. Right? Suffering does not have the last word. Because it didn't have the last word in Jesus of Nazareth, right? He suffered for us, but suffering doesn't get the last word. The resurrection gets the last word. And the third thing we said is salvation. The answer to whether we feel it or not, our most important question is the sin that separates you from God. The resurrection is divine vindication that your sin can be forgiven. Right? You can be in eternal relationship with God because Jesus died for your sins and conquered death and sin in the resurrection. So think about Romans three, Romans 6, 3-6. through 6. I think this is a good synopsis uh, from Paul. He says it a lot better than I can say. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? Right? We know that. Baptism and the, and the cross, they fit together. We die with Christ. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. This is something else to be said. Resurrection also means that the death of yourself is not the end. You were raised not just to go through Monday through Friday, thank goodness it's finally Saturday, I'm going to rest and comfort and get back to work on Monday. You were raised to something big, something special, to new life. Don't live in sin anymore like you're dead. 
right? Live holy life. Stop looking at pornography. Stop being greedy. Stop lusting after someone who's not your husband or wife. Live a life that matters that you're called to because you were called to new life. And Jesus died not so you could struggle through sin and maybe make it to heaven one day, right? Maybe, whew, just made it. Jesus rose from the dead so you could live a new and different life. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to our sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, that the tomb was empty, that the grave could not hold Jesus Christ. And God, we know we live in a world where that truth seems sometimes distant and peripheral, but God, we just pray that all of us, you would help us to center the truth of the resurrection in the meaningness of our lives and the behaviors that we choose and the thoughts that we think. God, we don't want to live lives that don't matter, um, that are, are focused on our suffering or the suffering in the world. We don't want to live lives where we're just getting through. God, we want to live lives of victory. God, I just pray that somehow we could find and trust in the victory of the resurrection and share that with the whole world so that we all one day can be in your presence forever. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection makes that possible. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I want to thank David for doing a fabulous job. This is, man, maybe one of the best classes I've sat in. So rich and so deep and so powerful. This is the first time you've heard something like this. If you still have questions, if uh, you're on the other side of this debate and you feel like, well, there's actually some really good evidence as to why the resurrection, you know, I doubt it or I don't believe in it message me, reach out to me. I'd love, I'd love to talk about it and kind of learn your perspective a little bit better and discuss those items together. If maybe you found yourself on that side of this argument and now you're thinking, I don't know what I believe. I think this is the time that you look into these answers more, that you read through the biblical account of this, that you talk with someone, that you go to church, that you start to seek these answers. Because I think the history on all this is certainly much more solid than a typical atheist or agnostic would have you believe. And I think the truth is, is that if we're an atheist or an agnostic, we just assume or presuppose that this stuff is a bunch of rubbish, okay? That there's not any history behind it, that it's just simply a religious text that says things, of course, in support of a resurrection, but that there's no history to back that up. But I do think that it is both something we believe in faith, but also that we can believe with reason behind it, which was the point of this series as an apologetic series. It is something that we can defend because it is reasonable and, as we would say, because it actually did happen. We will be back next week, I believe, with Bill Ivey. He's going to be talking on marriage and family for three weeks in a row. I haven't talked to Bill yet. We may take three weeks off from the podcast to allow him to speak more openly and it's more private and personal topics. Um, and then we'll be back, if, if we are with the podcast or if we aren't, we'll be back in three weeks after that with a new series. So may God bless you this week, and I hope it's a great week for you. We will see you the next time that we see you. Bye-bye.